Friedrich Nietzsche pointed out, the most dangerous person in the world is a philosopher, because he comes in and everything which was agreed on is no longer clear. He confuses everyone. And tonight we have a founding, founding professor of EGS. He was here in the first year, and he's coming back every time he can. And he is on his book that the most dangerous man in the world. Philosopher. Now you have the most dangerous man in the world. Please welcome Slava Thanks very much for the great number of you here. Just a couple of points before I begin. Three points, basically. First, I must publicly, I promise this to myself, apologize to my good friend Christopher Finch that I was not here yesterday. I mean, he's one of my absolute persons, the reason I am here. And I just was on, on I have my problems with panic attacks. Uh, I was not in a good yesterday. So I really apologize. On the other hand, so that you will not think something is wrong. I hope he's not here because I formally prohibited Alain Badiou to come here. <laughs> no, no, seriously, because, you know, he has some health problems. It, he came yesterday tired and I saw him. We had lunch this afternoon. We did our usual communist plotting against different persons and so on. And he wasn't here. Uh, uh, third thing, may, it may surprise you, but I decided, because we debated it a lot in my class, that I will talk about Buddhism. And it's very open. Please don't take this as a rhetorical point. I'm not sure how deep I am into it. And even if I will be very critical, this is more kind of a series of remarks to provoke you. Because I know that some of you are probably much more substantially in it than me, myself. So why deal with Buddhism? Is it just the fashion so that we in the West feel more organic, holistic, or whatever? No, I claim there are two features which account for the, let's call it naively, actuality of Buddhism in our today's global capitalist, whatever we call it, predicament. As we all know, two features characterize our civilization today, to put it very naively. A, global capitalism with its unheard of dynamics, and second, science, the role of science. And I claim in both domains, Buddhism, and I'm not going now into is it the authentic one or not, blah, 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 but some reference of Buddhism if it's not crucial, at least it plays a very interesting role. First, I would like to begin with what may be dismissed, but I don't think it's as simple as that, as some kind of a comical Western copy of authentic Buddhism, so-called Western Buddhism. By this, I mean groups in West who practice Buddhism and so on and so on. Now, if you followed this trend a little bit, you may have noticed something, how Western Buddhism presents itself as the remedy against the stressful tension of capitalist dynamics, allowing us to uncouple from this 
crazy, frantic rhythm and retain inner peace and enlightenment. But I claim, and you know what gave me to think this? When I read, I don't know in what uh, journal, an interesting analysis of, let's call it, if not religious, spiritual trends <laughs> among top managers, businessmen today. To cut a long story short, 80%, some kind of uh, what they claim, Tibetan, Buddhist, whatever you call it, practicing so-called uh, meditation. And I can understand it. Because insofar as if you are really engaged in modern capitalism at its craziest, you know, like it's really as one of the top managers claimed that when he studied Buddhist ontology, the way he understood it, the idea being, as you probably know, the fragility of existence. All are fleeting phenomena. Everything can fall apart at every point. He said, but this is our market today, no? One rumor, everything falls apart. So he got it correctly, this manager. Sorry, I forgot his name. He said, if you really want to be fully engaged in this market, you get crazy. So what you need is a kind of a inner distance which tells you, okay, it's a crazy market, to teach you how to participate in it without being fully existentially engaged in it. That's why businessmen like this bullshit, you know, even if I speculate all the day, it's just a cosmic play for me. I'm aware of the nothingness of it. It means nothing. It functions perfectly, which is why, to conclude this first point, I think that if Max Weber were to rewrite his legendary book on capitalism, Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism today, the title of the book would have been, I'm sure, the Taoist or Buddhist ethic and the spirit of global capitalism, something <laughs> like that. Now, Morsia, no, 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 wait a minute, let me make one point. There may be, I cannot resist it, it's in my nature to make so-called bad taste jokes, but I take Buddhism extremely seriously. It's absolutely an authentic I, I don't like the term because it's itself Western anti-Orientalist, but let's call it subjective existential experience. So the other reason, for me at least much more interesting, is what some people call the so-called cognitivist breakthrough. The new stage of our understanding of our brain, our thinking, provided by whatever you call them, brain sciences, uh, cognitivism, and so on. Uh, now, I don't want to deal with the problem, like, are they true or not? What I'm just saying is that more and more, they are somehow generally received. Even those who should resist it most, psychoanalysts, you know, often play the game of, how do you call this? If you can't beat them, join them, you know? Like they claim, oh, but you see what cognitive sciences are, are arriving up. This is just a paraphrase of what already Freud knew and so on, you know, just kind of a, a uh, join the enemy. Okay, but there is nonetheless one interesting point for me. And here I agree with, uh, we have many problems with me and Wolfgang. But at one point, I agree with him, and I will make this point, that if we want to 
retain Martin Heidegger as a reference. It's crucial not to read Heidegger along the lines of some kind of anti-technological romanticism, you know, Heidegger walking in his stupid forests up there and, uh, <laughs> and uh, cursing all the technology, blah, blah. No, Heidegger is quite rational here. I read in one biography of Heidegger that like, okay, it's nice that authentic Todd Nauberg hat, but at the end he wanted, he wanted uh, air conditioning, full electricity <laughs> and so on, you know. Okay, so what I'm saying is that the question that we should ask in this spirit is, it's a very naive one, if we really accept, we don't have to, but if we, the result of brain sciences, which is, but this already is to be debated, but I don't want to enter it, that uh, our subjective freedom or the unity of our ego as a free ego, as a free and responsible agent is an illusion, that in reality we are just a well-functioning uh, neuronal mechanism, whatever you put it. Okay, the problem is how to subjectivize this. That is to say how should or does this affect your innermost, but not in some deep matter, even everyday sense of an agent in gainful social life and so on and so on. So here I think that Buddhism, to be vulgar, is doing quite well without any irony. Because there are three main attitudes, the way I can see it. I mean, only, I'm talking only about those who accept cognitivist breakthrough. And Buddhism is the fourth one, I think. The first predominant attitude is simply to resign ourselves to the gap between the scientific view of ourselves as neuronal automata, whatever you want, and our <coughs> everyday self-experience as free, responsible, autonomous agents. The idea is that because of, you can be very materialist here, because of how we were produced through evolutionism, through evolutionary choice, and so on and so on, it, we cannot but experience ourselves as free, responsible agents, and so on. So that we are simply condemned to live in the gap. Scientifically, we know, but in everyday life, you know, it's the, the same, some of them like to use this metaphor as, we know very well how big moon is, but you cannot help perceiving moon as that small circle up there. That is the same. We cannot step out. The second attitude, the worst, if you ask me, is the, I hope again we agree here, we have many other reasons to kill each other, so here we can agree. Uh, this is my declaration of love, if you didn't get it, you know, uh, uh, is the Habermasian position, which is he also fully asserts the duality, but not as a but the non-naturalist aspect is for Habermas not simply an illusion that we should tolerate, but a kind of a transcendental a priori which is necessary and even points to an imminent limitation of scientific knowledge. No, his Habermas's reasoning is here. Very, a very transcendental philosophical one. It is that science is a certain social practice. 
intersubjective practice where you know we formulate universal statements we confirm them through experiments in a debate blah blah and in this practice the transcendental a priori of this practice is that we are free responsible being reasoning in a certain way and so on so even if the result for example of our scientific investigation is we are neuronal puppets whatever we should not forget that this result is the result of an exercise of our transcendental freedom of scientific thinking which is a priori you know we cannot say no that is false if you neglect that the result also uh, disappears then we have an even more naive but in a way sympathetic to me attitude that of some radical brain scientists like the big couple from La Jolla I think California Patricia and Paul Churchland they claim I don't think it works what they are saying but it's a beautiful position they claim that no they claim that our the term among some brain scientists for this everyday attitude is as you probably know folk psychology no uh, this spontaneous idea my god i do whatever i want we are free and so on okay they claim that this folk psychology doesn't have such a deep status as some darwinist thing that it's not a kind of a biological evolutionary a priori but simply a reflection of our old naive ideologist they say self like in old times when i think this is even by patricia churchland uh, uh, an example when so called primitive people saw a lightning they thought god is sending us a message or there is a higher force behind and they claim when we act i think oh i have a free self in me which is the true source of it it's exactly the same type of superstition and in the same way that even if you are scared shit of a storm as i am i admit it especially if you are up on the plane when it happens no uh, uh, nonetheless at least mostly i succeed not starting to pray and <laughs> claiming you know like you naturalize it we no longer think like so called primitives they the churchland couple they think the same thing is possible with even with our freedom of the will and self and in a pretty naive way they describe how such a society would have looked that it wouldn't be simply a society without punishment as some people think namely the idea being if i'm an automaton and there is no freedom of the will what right do you have to punish me i'm not responsible no let it punishment can nonetheless be a regulative mechanism which works and so on uh, just a more a more kind less oppressive society and so on uh, the reason i don't agree with this solution is its implicit naivety and the one who is my good guy here the german brain scientist maybe you should invite him he didn't want to come or what thomas metzinger it would be really nice to get him maybe you can if he has some some blackmail him like you know <laughs> mafia everything is permitted to get good people here to satisfy you know like maybe your son will get have an accident who knows you know if you <laughs> don't come here is uh, no he he sees very well how 
this type of simple acceptance, okay, so what, we change our view, uh, still leaves, even if in words it recognizes, yeah, you admit, so what's the problem, you know, okay, I'm an automaton, what the hell. But de facto, in your activity, you still treat yourself as the good, old, free self. You don't really existentially accept it. And here, again, we come to Buddhism. Because Metzinger, who is a serious scientist, not some kind of a shitty new ager like those who claim, you know, the Tao of quantum physics. We are not talking about that. He is in. But at the same time, for very precise reasons, although he's also totally materialist, he is Buddhist in the sense that he claims that although it may appear that we are, as the first position which I described claims, that we are condemned to this duality. That is to say, scientifically we know we are neuronal automata, uh, uh, but in your immediate self-experience, you experience yourself as free agent and so on and so on, that there is nonetheless possible as a limit case, and this for him, as you can guess, would have been precisely when you arrive at enlightenment in Buddhism, when you accept so-called anatman, that your self does not have any substantial identity, that, and it's a beautiful thesis, I like it in a way, that, and again, he is not, in that sense, a mysticist. He claims that he's totally a scientist. He just claims that if you go to the end in Buddhist meditation, where you arrive a stage of, this is one popular book on Buddhism, John Epstein, I think, which is not so bad, the title is Things Without a Thinker. That literally, you arrive at a stage where you have thoughts, but you no longer can say there is an I, agent who is thinking these thoughts. And that he claims, although for large majority of us, he puts it very nicely, we can, he agrees with the first position, we can uh, scientifically, objectively accept as an object of study our brain, okay, we are automata, but he puts this beautifully. He says, we simply cannot really believe in it in our everyday life. Even if you claim, okay, so what, I'm that kind of automaton, in your innermost identity you cannot really believe this, except if you come to the end of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Buddhist uh, meditation. I love this position, although, and Metzinger is aware of this, although, do you know that, and that's the beauty of all these debates, cognitive scientists, uh, Buddhism, because, you know, mo many of them are idiots, but some of them are really bright guys. And they know it, for example, my God, I forgot his name. There is a scientist, Jewish, because this affects his notion of free will. He's so well known in San Francisco. He's come with, his name will come to me. Who is the very author of the crucial experiment. His name will come to me, I'm sorry. Benjamin Libet, you know. The author of the crucial experiment demonstrating allegedly that there is no free will. You know, it's that famous experiment where, don't ask me how, I'm giving you a Reader's Digest <laughs> simplified version, that he wires your neurons and then he asks you to do some extremely elementary gesture. For example, grab this pen. 
and he tells you just to say now or whatever to somehow signal the moment you decide it. Okay, you know the story. I don't know how much part of a second before you decide, your brain already knows it. Signals are already on the way. But now comes the beauty. That's why I like this guy. Uh, uh, a big shock to this common gang of more stupid flat scientists is that they automatically took this as a proof of there is no free will. Because when you think you decide, you just, what's the term, take cognizance, assume what your brain has already decided. But this is not, you see, these are intelligent guys. This is not Libet's position. And he has, that's why, not out of any anti-Semitism or praising the Jews, that's why I emphasize that he is a Jew, because he makes here a very nice theological, but he's a materialist, just as a spiritual point, reference to uh, Ten Commandments, prohibitions, and he claims, although it's also a very problematic topic, that we are looking for freedom of the will at the wrong point, that the basic, he is very Hegelian here, negativity, that the basic form of freedom is not, I do this. He, there we are overdetermined by neurons, blah, blah. But to stop it, that, that in that split of a part of a second, when I do this, I can stop it. And that's the form of freedom. It's a beautiful Then if you want a more complex counter-argumentation, Daniel Dennett, who again is like mixed, sometimes too stupid, but sometimes bright, has also a wonderful attack on this primitive reading of Libet. His point is very Deridian almost. A minimum of, he almost calls it difference temporality of brain. He says that there is no freedom only if you presuppose what he wrongly, I think, Daniel, called a so-called central Cartesian self where ultimately things happen at the same point. You know, if, this, if you presuppose this, then you can say, I decided this, but it already happened. But you must presuppose a homogeneous central agent with basic temporality. If you renounce this, then this primitive conclusion doesn't work. I'm telling you this, why? Just to let you know that I'm not, as it were, totally bluffing, you know, that uh, I know that things are more complex. But, okay, now this is just the introduction, you know. You got the idea why I think Buddhism is not just uh, kind of a, uh, I mean, amusing, exotic reference, but it means something spiritually today in our own constellation. Because it, again, it appears to be the ideal form of functioning in today's crazy, frantic capitalism. At the same time, it appears to be the proper mode of subjectivization of the results of modern science. So, how do things stand with it? Now I go to even a more problematic stance, and I will try to turn directly into Buddhism. It will be, of course, here I have 45 minutes or what, very short, but uh, please believe me, I do bluff a little bit, but I know more than it's here. No? So, okay. so as you all know, let me begin with the beginning. Buddhism, we all know, is concerned with solving the problem of 
suffering. So its first axiom, as it were, automatic presupposition is not only we, but no living being wants to suffer. Okay, I will not go now immediately into it, but for me as a Freudian Lacanian, I would say here already problems began. I don't, I think that if there is something which is from a Freudian standpoint not true, is that we don't want to suffer. Uh, and not only, I'm not going here in some obscure uh, 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 masochism or whatever, I just would like to invoke to you, I will be very pathetic here, even in the sense of melodrama. Imagine yourself passionately in love. Isn't it that if you are true to yourself, and you can be, no cognitive discordance here, you know very well or you suspect that at the end it will probably end bad, that whatever will happen at the end it will be for you terrible suffering, whatever, but nonetheless, and I've spoken with people to whom this happened, passionately in love and then dropped, and now I'm quite open, and I was one of those people with whom I've spoken, <laughs> Kevin. But you know, when it ends in catastrophe, just suffering, and then a friend asked me the usual question, now you probably regret it. My answer was automatic, no, I would have done it again, you know. So I simply think that there is, in our passionate engagement, certain logic where you are ready fully to buy final fiasco, incredible suffering, but you are ready to do it again, you know. But okay, I will come to this later. Now let's go through Buddhist doxa. The source of suffering lies in the unquenchable desire of people for things which, even if they get them, will never satisfy them. And it is this dissatisfaction which causes suffering. So, the goal of Buddhist practice is, as we all know, liberation from suffering. We can call it reaching nirvana, enlightenment, awakening, whatever you want. And everything a Buddhist does is ultimately for the attainment of this enlightenment. Buddhism, Buddhist practice, first, as we all know, focuses on a morality that will lead to enlightenment. You know how it began for Buddha. He first establishes the fact life is this uh, uh, will of desire, it's suffering. Then he defines the causes of suffering and then the way to fight them. And here, at least, the moment Buddhism became an institution, it, of course, introduced a certain gradualism in the sense that first it begins with a simple morality, everyday morality, which is supposed to, as it were, pave, prepare the way or put us on the path to enlightenment. But as they emphasize Buddhists, it's not enough just to regulate your conduct, how you act. This should culminate in enlightenment. And the point of all this is enlightenment. Uh, uh, this is already interesting, you know why? Because I read recently in a, a book, I think it's a book of the guy, very interesting guy, I think, what's the title, Buddha's Consciousness or what? Owen Flanagan, one of the cognitivist sciences who is also 
doing Buddhism draws attention, and here begins our Western distortion, to an interesting fact that for us in the West, if you say I'm a Buddhist, it usually means I practice some stupid transcendental meditation or whatever. It's automatically meditation. While she draws attention to the fact that for the majority, for the nations, I don't know, Thailand, I don't know which others, where really Buddhism is a way of life for the majority, the large majority of people don't meditate. For them, being a Buddhist means two things. First, to respect this ethic, uh, moral rather than ethical, moral rules, you know, don't be violent, don't cause suffering, blah, blah. And where does then meditation enter? It's very interesting. It's just as a kind of a imagined, presupposed, presupposed point of reference. You need, even if they don't exist, to be cynical. You need to know that there are some people who made it to the end, you know, so that it gives you hope. It's more this kind of a subject, to paraphrase Lacan, subject presupposed to meditate. People need it as a fixed point of reference. Okay, so let's go on. Uh, uh, what's then, how do we then fight our enslavement to desires? Here we have the first point of Buddhism, which is, I think, very nice materialist. There are no higher powers. You should forget about those later religious misreadings of karma and so on and so on. The idea is simply that karma or fate triggered by your desires, actions, is a kind of, is immanent to the way we act. Because as Buddhists like to point out, you know, they have this, Wonderful, no wonder even some Stalinist Marxists liked it, this idea of codependent origination, no, which Stalin called the electrical unity of all phenomena, to be slightly cynical, no? So uh, the idea, I precisely try to give you an idea of karma, which is not some kind of a divine up there. It's simply that our acts, being part of a rich texture, texture of the world, leave traces have consequences. Some consequences are good, wholesome, others are not, and so on. And in this way, uh, to deal with your karma means to regulate, uh, try to diminish negative traces, consequences of your acts. And again, as you all know, I will quickly just uh, 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 enumerate them, just to give an idea of basically how, in a good sense, that's not a criticism, how common sense this first step of basic morality is. You have this Buddhist classification where they claim actions can occur at three levels, body, speech, and mind. And at each level, already Buddha, but it was elaborated later, proposes a whole categorization of bad acts, as it were. Uh, first, at the level of body, there are acts which are to be avoided. Killing, stealing, sexual misconduct. By misconduct, it's not meant so much uh, perversion or what, but this excessive passion, excessive attachment. Then, at the level of speech, for 
actions, lying, slender, harsh speech, malicious gossip, and at the level of mind, greed, anger, delusion. So the idea is that this is vaguely the first step, no, to, as it were, calm yourself down in what Buddha calls the middle way, not the Tony Blair third way, but the <laughs> more authentic middle way, you know, like uh, neither excess of, uh, uh, of I don't know, uh, gluttony, sex, or whatever, but also not uh, some kind of a, uh, sadomasochist radical renunciation and so on and so on. The, the goal of all this is to acquire this passion, as some translate it, for the objects of clinging, to which we cling. That is to say, the, uh, the point is uh, your subjective attitude of how much you cling, you attach yourself to objects. Because, again, you all know this, I'm just repeating it. This, uh, uh, what in Buddhism is called samsara is precisely this wheel of life, of suffering, and the point, this is crucial, I think, without this you don't get it. Uh, it's not that from bad samsara we should get good samsara or karma. The point is not if you do, this would be the Western reading, if you do bad things, you will have bad karma. So let's do good things, so you have good karma, so when you die, you will profit. No, no, here Buddhism is not this type of bullshitting. It's serious, which means that the point is not to get good karma. The, the point is to step out of it. But again, I'm well aware how refined this is. Stepping out doesn't mean, uh, doesn't mean melancholia, von Trier, the end of the world. In one version of Buddhism, even nothing has to change materially. Only your, let's call it, although it sounds too Californian, your <laughs> attitude. Uh, and then, uh, now I see slowly emerging problems which are not imported by me. I register these problems in the very ambiguities, conflicts, the way I found them in the Buddhist teaching itself. Okay. The guy, sorry for vulgarity, who reaches this stage of acquiring a distance, maybe the term stepping out is wrong because we have nowhere to go out. There is no transcendence in Buddhism. That's beautiful about it. Uh, it's, as we know, is called bodhisattva, the one who is concerned with, uh, uh, with freeing all sentient beings, not just himself or herself, even not just humans from samsara and its cycle of death, rebirth, and uh, suffering. But what makes it so, diff so interesting here is that, and this brings me to the first conflict that I see, okay, conflict, tension. You know that uh, traditionally, at least according to my information, uh, we get three levels or notions of bodhisattva. They are called very nicely king-like bodhisattva, boatman bodhisattva, and shepherd bodhisattva. King bodhisattva aspires to become Buddha as soon as possible and then help all others. Like, I do it myself. I try to reach nirvana. And the wager is that by doing this, 
either me as an example or by acting in a more gentle way, I will help others. Boatman is already more, uh, uh, more, more uh, communist, no? The idea is, yes, but not me alone, together with others. Now, the highest, according to some classifications, but for me, I agree here with critiques with the other tendencies, Buddhism, the lowest, the most dangerous, where things go really wrong is separate like Bodhisattva. The idea is the following one, that the greatest ethical act is that you reach enlightenment, but out of compassion for all those who are, as they call it in the greatest work of American literature, I'm making joke. Did you read the cycle of novels from, how are they called? Team Lahai and that left behind. <laughs> that, the lowest of the low, okay. What I want to say, I mean, it's really like Dan Brown, it's Shakespeare uh, compared <laughs> to them. But what I want to say is that, uh, uh, so again, that should be, should be gr the great ethical act. You are there, eternal bliss, blah, blah. But out of compassion, you go back into valley of suffering and so on and so on. Like, you know, you, you give priority to others. You say, no, I don't have right to enjoy it myself. I go back, help others, this delaying, stepping back. But some, I was told, maybe I'm wrong, many of you must know it better, better, Theravada Buddhists made a counter, okay, okay, in traditional Buddhism, there is a kind of a graduation here, no? The lowest, the king bodhisattva, I do it, fuck you, you follow me or not, you know? <laughs> then the shepherd-like, stupid communist, no? And then the highest one, I was up there, but ooh, I came infinite goodness, I came down to help you all. But uh, some Theravada guys, and I'm immediately on their side, they make a nice argument. If the core of authentic Buddhism is not, has nothing to do with this ridiculous European spirituality, ooh, I move up there into a higher domain. No, I stay here. I'm fully here. I eat the same apples like you, whatever. It's just my attitude totally changes. I'm still socially active. I even, it even doesn't mean to attain nirvana that you meditate, that you are in some kind of a pseudo-orgasmic spiritual trust. If this is true, and authentic Buddhists always emphasize this, you know, that this vision of Buddhist saint as someone hidden in a cave and just trembling, blah, blah, blah. That's false. So if this is true, why then the necessity to step back? You can act like Buddha and so on. You can attain nirvana and at the same time be active here. The idea is, and I think again, this is the origin of catastrophe. This, I, you know, the moment somebody who wants to redeem you, here we as Nietzscheans should agree, uh, boasts of how good he was that he sacrificed himself, don't trust the guy, you know. Okay, so uh, what do I mean by this? Now I come to another, please, I'm here openly exposing myself, I'm not kidding, this is not rhetoric, to your criticism if you know more. I noticed another problem here. On the one hand, some 
radical Buddhists, radical means I like them, no, sorry, uh, 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 describe in a wonderful way how authentic Buddhism deals with suffering. You first isolate the cause of suffering and blame the others. For example, oh, I was deprived of that pleasure, fuck the world, and so on. Why me? This is the eternal why me question. You know, like, children are starving in Somalia. Somalia. Okay, I will give them $5 a month to make me feel good, but why me or why my child? The idea is that, of course, the first thing to do is to precisely stop blaming the circumstances. Blame your desire and then extinguish, although I don't like this term, extinguish because it's too violent in a wrong way, but here is a quote. What has always been, uh, what was extinguished when you step out of samsara, circular suffering, is only the false view of the self. What had always been illusory was understood as such. Nothing can, was changed, but the perspective of the observer. So, uh, I noticed, and again, correct me if I am uh, wrong, I noticed here the following tension, which from my reading or on books on history of Buddhism is all present there, and it mirrors precisely this first tension in the notion of Bodhisattva. Should I simply go there and in this way it's the best thing for others or should I play this sacrificial game no no I love you so much I step back and so on the problem is that uh, on the one hand we have this radical description of nirvana which is everything is different but nothing changes you know like it's the same world out there and so on just I am aware of its illusory nature, and I assume this illusory nature existentially. Why? And this I call the minimalist attitude. But then you nonetheless have, especially attached to that notion of bodhisattva, as the one who sacrifices himself, the opposite, I call it maximalist attitude. I don't want to reach nirvana before prior to all other sentient beings reaching it. So there, it's not just my subjective attitude. You are aiming effectively at some kind of a global, uh, as it were, uh, uh, global, uh, global cosmic change. The next ambiguity I see is, uh, uh, and again, I already debated this in my class. Some of you reproached me, so I did as much of homework as I was able to do, and I still stick to my opinion that there are serious debates among, within Buddhism. I think this is the third level of the same tension, uh, namely, uh, as you, you remember how I described it, first you do morality, no? Uh, not too much sex, proper eating, don't curse, don't be violent, as preparing the way for enlightenment. But the obvious point here is, is there any link between the two? Like this is a great problem in Buddhism. I read many texts on this, where they claim if we are really honest, 
We have to admit that once you are in enlightenment, nothing immanently prevents you, for example, from torturing people. You can just say, my act leaves no traces because I'm already at the nirvana le uh, level, no karma, and so on, and so on. Now, I know what you will say now. But nonetheless, where is here compassion for others, blah, blah, blah. I'm just making a typical Western logical extrapolation, totally out of touch with existential reality of Buddhism. No, I will give you immediately proofs, uh, proofs sorry. Just before I go to this, the fourth debate I encountered is the one uh, where even Dalai Lama has some wonderful statement like, if drinking, by drinking he means real alcohol, helps you, why not, you know? Like, uh, the problem is that uh, many, if not all, of the states described as nirvana can be, if not totally, it gets pretty close to it. You know, like they say money is not all. My answer is usually, but it comes pretty close to it. No, okay. Uh, that, uh, uh, what if you can induce the experience which immanently, inherently fits nirvana in a biochemical way with some drugs or whatever? How to distinguish? Should we then distinguish the bad nirvana, I take a pill, fuck you, I'm there, and the good nirvana, I was torturing myself, uh, meditating for years, whatever. Uh, some guys, but here I don't agree with them, try to introduce here an ethical distinction. Quote from Owen Flanagan, cases where happiness is gained by magic pills or is due to false belief do not count because the allegedly happy person must be involved in cultivating her own virtue. Happy states born of delusion are undeserved. But I think this is totally non-immanent. Once you are in, you are in. Who cares how you got there? Okay, back to that problem of, uh, of uh, uh, suffering, compassion, and so on. Let me give you a little bit to shock you and then, yeah, yeah, we will, <laughs> will stop then. To shock you, some of my old stuff, uh, a little bit of Zen, of Buddhism and war. Because, you know, like, Buddhism did deal with this problem. Especially interesting is here the relation between Japanese Zen Buddhism and war. And it's interesting to note what tricks did Zen Buddhism employ to justify uh, taking part in war. First, there are two main strategies in Zen Buddhism. The first one, to justify participating in war. That is to say, killing people, whatever, to be clear. The first one is the standard teleological narrative which is even well known in our Western societies. A quote, uh, uh, even though, I think this quote is from, I forgot, uh, Daizet Tetaro Suzuki, the great popularizer, even though the Buddha forbade the taking of life, he also thought, taught that until all sentient beings are united together, through the exercise of infinite compassion, there will never be peace. Therefore, 
as a means of bringing into harmony those things which are incompatible, killing and war are necessary. You know, the usual trick, you know, like, my God, I'm sorry to tell you, Hitler could have argued like this. He could have said, I'm totally against suffering. I want peace. But fuck it, there will be no peace as long as Jews manipulate in our midst. So the only way to really fight for peace is to give the to Jews to be cynical one-way first-class ticket to Auschwitz, no? I mean, uh, okay. Uh, so again, did you listen precisely what this passage says? It is the very force of compassion which yields the sword. A true warrior kills out of love. And Suzuki was consequent here. You know, when he wrote many texts supporting Japanese war effort in China, he said, the Chinese are like stupid children. They cannot get that the sword which is killing them now is really a sword of love. He even proposed so much, fuck you, if you think you will squeeze out by compassion. Suzuki and some other Japanese Buddhists introduced the wonderful term of compassionate war. Like, you know, you do it precisely out of compassion to prevent further time. Now comes the true horror. Uh, okay, this is the Western bullshit also. We have it. But Suzuki and others then add to this teleological, let's call it, justification in the sense of war is a necessary evil to bring about the greater good. No? And, of course, in a certain way, I agree with it. I mean, I'm not... Uh, there is a much more radical line of reasoning, which is, I really find this one uh, terrifying. And uh, Okay, look into my book. I think it is The Puppet and the Sword, where I, I don't want to repeat myself, but I develop this in detail. Namely, uh, Suzuki also dealt with this problem how to make the Japanese military machinery more efficient. He knew well that we have a certain elementary decency. Like, let's say I, you are my love partner. I meet you, Wolfgang, on a battlefield, and even if I hate you, I would, I would find it somehow difficult to stab my knife or sword into you. Here Suzuki enters and says, I have this difficulty because I'm still caught in the false illusion of myself. You know, like, because I still think I'm the agent of my acts, I feel falsely responsible and so on. But, quote from Suzuki, a, uh, a beautiful one. If, the, the logic is that if I reach nirvana, then I no longer experience myself as an active agent responsible for the act, but, you know, it's this very beautiful, I admit it, Buddhist view of world as a free flow of phenomena where I, whatever remains of me, I'm no longer an agent, but just a pure gaze, an impassive observer which meditates on this crazy dance. This makes things easier because here, quote from Suzuki, when I try to kill some of you. It is really not he, me, but the sword itself that does the killing. He, 
the killer, has no desire to do harm to anybody. But the enemy appears and makes himself a victim. It is as though the sword performs automatically its function of justice, which is the function of mercy. Now, are you? And please, don't, just don't tell me these are the freaky Japanese and so on. All around, you find this idea that, all around Buddhism, that reaching nirvana, getting rid of your false self, makes you a much better warrior. This is why you have this long mythology of, you know, Zen Buddhists as perfect samurai, because uh, you can do it with proper, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, proper, uh, with, uh, proper distance, and so on and so on. So if you allow me now from here just to, I mean, I should squeeze it now, two concluding points. The one is that here I see, I cannot, my God, I feel like a bad Buddhist. Let's squash that. Uh, take a living life. Take a sentient being. Good, good. He killed a sentient being. Good thing, you know. Uh, but you know that this will worsen your karma, you know. In the next life, maybe, instead of being an even greater philosopher, you will be reborn as that butterfly, who knows, you know. Sorry, I'm not making fun. But I hope, no. Let, let me, no, I'm not, because, you know why not? Because do not, please, misunderstand me. And that's my, I'm open to say this tragedy here. I'm not in any way saying that Buddhist enlightenment is some kind of a joke to make, uh, uh, to make, uh, to make uh, killers or military better functioning. It's absolutely an authentic existential experience. All I'm saying is that we have to accept the gap. And again, Suzuki is here honest. He says, Buddhism is the technique of stepping out of the karma, blah, blah. And he says, you can be his examples, a Stalinist, a fascist, a liberal democrat, whatever. It doesn't matter. So I think to be a truly radical Buddhist, you have to accept the minimal gap between all those ethical. You know why? Because let me give you now a really brutal idea. Uh, if the point of acting kindly, the Buddhist moral injunctions and so on, compassionate, if the true point of this morality is to teach you, to bring you to this dispassionate attitude of seeing the illusory nature of reality and so on and so on. And I, when I was in Korea a month ago, I debated there with a Buddhist and I loved him because he said, yes, what's the problem? When I told him, wouldn't then be logical to conclude that the true proof that you are in Nirvana would have been precisely that you can do horrible things without your acts leaving traces in your karma. Like, it's easy to claim I don't cause any suffering, blah, blah, if you just, you know, eat properly, don't swear, don't steal, not too much sex, and so on, no kill. But wouldn't the true strength have been to do acts which usually involve a kind of a crazy fanatic attachment, torture, killing, but to be able to do it in the same way, with the distance? 
And here I got very depressed when I read a biography of, haha, he was the one, Pol Pot, Khmer Rouge. And it's incredible how many of his colleagues claim, people who met him, that Pol Pot had such an absolutely breathtaking, incredible, in direct human relations, inner peace and kindness, even when he ordered, we know what, that there was a kind of a myth all around Khmer Rouge leadership that he is in that highest stage, and so on. So what am I saying here are two things to conclude. First, I claim that, and I'm not even taking sides here, both positions are crazy, but I claim that here we should grasp the gap that separates Buddhism as one radical condition from, let's call it, the Western Christian ethics, which is, I, I think there is an absolute abyss here. And all those shitty attempts to claim, no, we are all talking about the same God or please, these are pastors, are wrong. Namely, as Chesterton and others emphasized, <coughs> in Western Christian ethics, the truth is, as it were, out there. The whole point is excessive attachment. What Buddhists see as evil is for us the good itself. Good means Let's take our love. You fall in love. Means, Alain Badiou will probably talk about this too later, which means, you know, you get excessively attached. You throw yourself to the end into it. In other words, as Chesterton put it so nicely, uh, 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 all other religions want to unite the world how to unite with God, we are all, one, all, blah, blah. Christianity separates. It's the religion of separation. Christianity is not a religion of harmony. It's a religion which says, yes, there is some kind of a, a, a homogeneous, harmonious circle of life, but this is bullshit. This is the pagan background. The Christian gesture is to say, no, I do something crazy. I choose this, I stick to this, even if it uh, turns everything around. Uh, okay, I will now, if you allow me just two, three minutes really to conclude. Here also, because some people try, this will be the conclu really concluding part, some people try to bring together uh, Heidegger and Buddhism, claiming again two paths towards the same and so on. No, I claim not. You, you know why not? Because for Heidegger, what he calls Ereignis is a radical form of historicity, concealment, unconcealment, and so on, and so on. And uh, precisely this radically historical dimension is missing in. For Heidegger, Ereignis is not Nirvana. Ereignis is also finite. Ereignis is a historical event. This dimension I don't find. But now, if you allow me just to conclude, and my, it's madness because this is the speculative center of what I try to prove. Uh, where I would have been 
at the same time, where I would have entertained a certain distance towards Heidegger and towards Buddhism is in the following one. And this is not just ethical, it's much more uh, a radical distinction. You know, as a guy called, if you want to get more on this, there is an interesting book, very, it's a modest book, but very well written. Full, I think the guy is Brett Davis. I forgot the title, but basically it's about Heidegger and Zen Buddhism. And he points to one, to an, a deep ambiguity in Heidegger. How? Heidegger, sometimes he's radically historicist, you know, in the sense of like modern nihilism, blah, blah. But somehow here and there, Heidegger locates, let's call it naively, the origin of evil, of how things go wrong, into the a priori structure of disclosure of being itself. For example, I will read you this short passage from Heidegger's Der Spruch des Anaximander, uh, the saying of Anaximander from Holzwege, where he claims something which sounds strangely Buddhist, a quote, an entity may even insist bestehen upon its while like uh, strange translation, it means like the way it goes on, I think, solely to remain more presence, present in the sense of perduring. That which lingers persists in its presencing, presencing. In this way, it extricates itself from its transitory while. While is here a substantive. It strikes the willful pose of resistance no longer concerning itself with whatever else it is present. It stiffens as if this were the only way to linger. It aims solely for, solely for continuance and subsistence. So here Heidegger says something like the origin of disturbance is when a thing, an entity, an Zionist, persists too much, doesn't want to be just part of circle of life, whatever, you know, what is the circle of life? I hate it. It's, you know, I think it's the most oppressive ideology you can imagine. It's my old joke, maybe you know it. Did you see, I hope you didn't, The Lion King. <laughs> and you know when, where you find there the song, The Circle of Life? Precisely when the son asks his father the obvious question, is this right that we lions eat zebras? And father, it's easy when you are on the top, sings the song, which is, it's all the circle of life. We eat zebras, but we will die, we will turn into dust, our flesh will feed uh, grass, and grass will be eaten by zebras. So it's all one big circle of life, no? So all I'm tempted to say is imagine in Beautiful Life, the movie by Benigni, the son asking him, father, but why? are Germans killing us Jews. And I can well imagine Roberto Benigni singing back, it's all one big circle of life, you know. <laughs> Jews are killing us, but we will die, and we will turn into food, our manure for grass. Grass will be eaten by cows, and one of us will kill a cow, we will eat the cow, and so it's a big circle of life, you know. Like, like you know, what's the point here? The point is, yeah, but what if there are different circles of life, you know, like maybe, let's hope, 
there is a circle of life where you exactly don't have to do Holocaust. No, let's hope. No, so seriously, now comes my final thesis. I will tr just try to hint it. If you want more, read, read my big fat book. My thesis is that uh, enlightenment is a, an authentic position, but comes afterwards that Let's say at an animal level, immediately, we are simply fully immersed in life. And uh, there is no fall. We are there like animals. But how do you create the space for nirvana, void, or whatever? By acquiring a distance from being fully immersed into ordinary life. And this distance is through excessive attachment. That is to say, to be primitive, how do, it's very naive, I develop it much more technically in the book, how do animals become humans? When you say, no, no, sorry, Mr. Lion King, it's not a cycle of life, circle of life, there is this woman, political idea, I get fixated on that. If the whole world drops, I want that. You know, this fixation denaturalizes you, throws you out of the circle, and in this way, that's my claim, creates the space for, for withdrawal, for nirvana. You cannot get into nirvana directly from full immersion into natural life. You must fall, fall in the sense of excessive attachment, and this fall creates the void where, uh, uh, where you have to withdraw. Now, really to conclude, look, I even don't have a paper, no? Uh, this brings me, and here I'm not kidding, I'm sincerely asking you if you know more. I spoke with some guys here. This brings me to the crucial enigma that I find in Buddhism. And again, very respectfully, this is not a critical remark. Uh, you know, Buddha says, the fact is people suffer, how to get them out? As a Hegelian, I like the opposite question. Not how to get out, but how did we fall in? And here, and this is the question I'm asking people. Is simply samsara a fact, or was there some kind of, you know, illusion of Maya? But, like, how did we get caught into this illusion? And I can make a report to you, I got three answers. The first is the totally pragmatist one. Buddha is a practical guy. He is not, it's a concrete answer. I'm not mocking it. Buddha was a practical guy. His problem was how to get out of suffering. He didn't care about these metaphysical questions. The second answer is a version of the first one, but uh, it's more tricky one, a little bit of a sophism. It says to understand this, how the fall occurred, you have already to be there in nirvana. But once you are there, you don't care about this. You know, like a kind of a, a trick. The third one, and some Tibetans that I met in Beijing, half illegally, told me I really liked that. Here, I can identify with Buddhism. They told me that they gave me a kind of a, I, the name is meant ironically, but basically very seriously. You know in Star Wars, now we are talking about real works of art, you know how they all the time mention this dark side of power, you know. 
And this is, I think, very clear. So you don't have simply, we are caught into earthly confusion, but then there is a higher domain of peace. What if something can go terribly wrong in this nirvana domain itself? What if, you know, what if we are here in deep shit, not because, or to put it in more gnostic terms of Jacob Böhme, Schelling, and so on, human evil is not because we fell from God. Human evil originates in madness, reversal, something going wrong in God himself. I know in Buddhism you don't have, in this sense, God, but what they told me, these guys, is that, and they gave me a wonderful experimental, experiential reason. They told me, my God, just listen to, and I do, it's really pure horror. Do you know that Buddhist music, oh, oh, that, those horrible, they told me this is the voice of evil. And no wonder, you know who knows this, FBI. You remember some 10 years ago, Vaco, Vaco Texas, those fundamentalists who were encircled by, by uh, FBI? You know what music FBI played to them to get them out, to terrorize these Buddhist, Buddhist horns and so on and so on? So this is, I think, some kind of a secret of Tibetan Buddhism, which, and again, it's not rhetoric what I'm telling now. If you know anything about me, I would... Uh, it's nice that you want to take a walk before I finish. <laughs> Come back in half an hour. Come back in... No, seriously. You see, this enigma, speculative Hegelian, of how it's not just we hear our world of illusions and then nirvana. What if something can go wrong up there? I'm very sorry if I was too long, but on the other hand, I'm not sorry. Fuck you, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs>